Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, March 30th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. Ukraine has been the primary story in global national security news for more than a month now. With us today to discuss the overall situation is someone with deep knowledge and experience who can address the many facets of this international crisis. Lieutenant General retired Ben Hodges holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He joined CEPA in February 2018. A native of Quincy, Florida, General Hodges graduated from the United States Military Academy in May 1980 and was commissioned in the infantry. During his career, he commanded infantry units at the company, battalion, and brigade levels in the 101st Airborne Division, including command of the 1st Brigade Combat Team, Bastogne, of the 101st Airborne Division in Operation Iraqi Freedom from 2003 to 2004. General Hodges' other operational assignments include Chief of Operations for Multinational Corps Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom from 2005 to 2006, and Director of Operations for Regional Command South in Kandahar, Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010. General Hodges was also ser- has also served in a variety of joint and army staff positions to include aide-de-camp to the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, Chief of Staff for the 18th Airborne Corps, and Commander of NATO Allied Land Command in Izmir, Turkey. His last military assignment was as Commanding General, United States Army Europe, out of Wiesbaden, Germany from 2014 to 2017, and General Hodges retired from the U.S. Army in January of 2018. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, welcome to National Security This Week. John, thank you for the privilege. Uh, you are in Washington, D.C., back from uh, Germany for a short stint. Is that right? Yeah, I live in Frankfurt, Germany, but um, I do come back to the States about once a quarter to uh, check in with uh, SEPA, the think tank for which I work, but also stay connected to what's going on on the Hill, and uh, other think tanks and um, that sort of thing to make sure, because everybody in Europe expects that I will understand what's happening in the States, just <laughs> like everybody in the States assumes I'll know what's going on in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> so, General, you had a, a very distinguished career in the U.S. Army, numerous assignments that took you to all parts of the globe. H- how much of your career was spent focusing on the situation in Europe uh, and specifically looking at European security challenges, which have a direct bearing on American national security interests? Well, when, of course, when I was commissioned in May 1980, uh, most of the army was in Germany at the time, West Germany. I mean, that was the main effort. Part of, During the Cold War, uh, the United States Army and Air Force and Navy had huge uh, contingents there. And so I went to Germany as a lieutenant, uh, served in a mechanized infantry unit. And that's kind of where I got my start. And then, um, of course, the wall came down and uh, the Cold War ended and things changed dramatically. I did go back to Europe one more time um, in uh, 1990, 91, 90, or 95, 97, excuse me, uh, <laughs> when I was the aide-de-camp for Secure. Uh, and this is the time when NATO um, was used to implement the Dayton Peace Accord in the former uh, Republic of Yugoslavia 
you know, after the breakup, and you had this terrible, you had genocide, you had refugees. It was so it was the first time that NATO ever served out of outside of its periphery, if you will. Uh, and it was very successful for uh, a variety of reasons. We even had Russian troops that were with us at that time at the, to implement the Dayton Peace Accord in 1995. And that was uh, quite an experience for me because I saw the interaction of diplomacy and military and you know how, how hard the Supreme Allied Commander at the time, General George Jowen, worked to ensure we had clear guidance, a clear mission, a clear chain of command but also how hard he worked to support our diplomats and our civilian leadership and, and how he emphasized the alliance. And so those lessons I learned from him when I was a major at the time really stuck with me. I didn't know, I didn't think I'd get back to Europe though until uh, 2012 when I showed up to be the commander of NATO's allied land command in Izmir, Turkey. And I uh, did that from 12 to 14. It was an amazing experience. And, and working on uh, you know, the readiness and interoperability of NATO's land forces. And also I began to appreciate the Black Sea region uh, because of Turkey, obviously. And then uh, uh, 2014, I moved to Wiesbaden, Germany to be the commander of U.S. Army in Europe. So my last five years in uniform was focused uh, extensively on NATO's eastern flank from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And in particular, uh, paying attention to the Black Sea region because this was really, uh, you could see back then already that this was Russia's main effort. The Black Sea is so important to Russia and all the bad stuff they do emanates out of the Black Sea. And and uh, so we began to pay close attention to it there. Yeah. And you are now the Pershing Chair for Strategic Studies at uh, at SEPA, the Center for European Policy Analysis. Uh, what What is SEPA and can you con- maybe outline a little bit the work that you do for them? Yeah, well, of course, you know, there there is a whole community of um, uh, think tanks, particularly in Washington, but not only, that uh, focus on uh, security, defense policy, just like you have think tanks that look at energy policy and, and uh, environmental issues. SEPA attract, was attractive to me um, because uh, I saw that they were one of the few t- think tanks that focused so much on Central and Eastern Europe, um, mm-hmm. Baltic Sea, Poland, and in especially the uh, the Black Sea region. Um, so I, I really uh, was fortunate to go start working with them the day after I retired from the Army. Um, and, and SEPA has continued to be a very good um, think tank that focuses on that region. In fact, later this month, I'll go to Romania uh, for a few days as part of a Black Sea study that we're doing now. And then two weeks later, I'll go to Turkey for three or four days. Again, more field study. Um, uh, on this Black Sea project, because our our ultimate goal uh, for anything tank is to influence policy, to help mm-hmm. the Congress, um, to uh, help the the White House, the Department of Defense, State Department, come up with policies that that can accomplish what we think needs to be done. And and so I, I really have enjoyed uh, being a part of that. Uh, so, Lieutenant General Hodges, our, our topic today, obviously, is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'd kind of like to start at sort of the operational level uh, of, of things, drill down into the tactical level, and then bring us back up to a strategic level of discussion. Uh, that said, you penned a piece for the Center for European Policy Analysis, for SEPA, a couple of weeks ago 
that was a pretty good, I mean, it's an in-depth examination of Russia's offensive, where they stood back then, and, and your prediction for how much longer the Russians could sustain that campaign before they reached their culminating point. Uh, can you give us a sense of what you think the Russian, let's start with the operational, what do you think the Russians' initial military objectives were in this invasion? What were they assigned to do so that you could achieve the military objectives and thereby accomplish the political objectives for the Kremlin? Well, uh, I, I do need to say up front, John, that um, I overestimated Russia's capability. Um, you're you're not alone. <laughs> um, and as and, and it's frustrated me because, like, God dang it, I was in Turkey. I was in Wiesbaden. We were watching them as best we could, trying to figure out what they were doing. Um, but I overestimated their capability, and I've tried to figure out why did I overestimate their capability? Because, I mean, we were hearing and seeing the, the investment they were making in the modernization that started back in 2007. Uh, we knew as early as 2014 that they were, 2015, that they were preparing for some sort of conflict at some point, And they were on a five-year plan. So we'd anticipated that they, they were not modernizing this force just to have nice parades. Right. Uh, but as I've looked back, what I failed to realize with their operations in Georgia and in Syria and their invasion of Ukraine in 2014, where they annexed uh, Crimea and uh, supported the so-called separatists in the Donbass region, it was the same guys. I mean, it was the same 5% of the army, mm. mainly their airborne division and some of their special forces that was doing everything. So 95% of the army actually has no operational experience. Uh, and then the Navy, uh, they don't, they don't do things like our Navy where you're uh, conducting uh, operations. I mean, training, uh, they, they don't have the operational experience that, that we have. And if you don't have experience, then you have to train at a high level of rigor to, to do, as you know, as a former Naval officer, uh, how difficult it is to conduct joint operations where you integrate the effects of air, land, sea, special forces, cyber. And I, and I, I missed, as I look back now, it's, it's obvious, but at the time I'd, I'd missed that it was the same group. And so now it, it's, it's so apparent that they don't have that experience. And so the kind of mistakes that they're making of, you know, the logistical planning, this famous, you know, convoy. Um, I mean, a, a brand new lieutenant would do better than that. <laughs> and, and yet um, there you are. And it also, though, is a reflection of decades of corruption inside the Ministry of Defense. I mean, you know, epic levels of, of corruption. So, yes, a lot of money was being spent, but a lot of it was going into people's pockets. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how you end up with uh, units that are untrained. You know, pilots have to fly a lot. Right. Uh, whether you're an Army uh, aviator or a Navy aviator or an Air Force pilot, you have to practice a lot. And, and Russian flying hours are a, a tiny fraction of what U.S. pilots fly, for example. And it's not just about keeping the plane horizontal. Um, it's also about flying against enemy radar and air defense and supporting ground forces or air to air and all those things. And they just they haven't had to do that. Mm -hmm. And so these weaknesses now are, are showing up in terms of shoddy equipment. Uh, there's reports of a lot of their missiles malfunctioning. Um, I mean, the kind of stuff that if it happened in U.S. military, there would be endless congressional investigations right. and, 
and, and why how are you wasting the taxpayers' money? But also, there's what's become evident, something that we did suspect. They have a very centralized command system. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, initiative, unlike in the U.S. military or the British military or other European militaries and Canadians, um, initiative is not only um, not expected, it's not wanted at the junior level. <laughs> Decisions are, are kept at a very high level. And so uh, that means you don't have sergeants. I mean, they probably don't have five sergeants in the entire Russian military that could make it in the U.S. Army or the Canadian Army or the British Army. Um, they, uh, and this is why all the generals are getting killed, too, because they are having to move forward to deal with what happens in real war, which is uncertainty, confusion, mistakes. So they're having to go, and people are sitting around waiting for the general to come fix it. Mm. And, and because they're not experienced, they're also talking on cell phones, on the Ukrainian <laughs> cell service. And it's easy to, to find them and kill them. And, and, and that's what's happening. So what do you think were the, uh, were the initial offensive uh, objectives for the Russian invasion once they came across the border? What were they aiming to achieve? So um, I believe that their, their objective, obviously, was to literally decapitate the government of Ukraine. Putin hates Ukraine. He says it's not even a state. And, and so he, there was a personal edge to this to punish Ukraine for daring to want to be like the West, for daring to want to integrate to the West. And so um, I, I believe he thought that he could uh, end up capturing Kiev in just a few days, uh, get control of the entire coastline, and uh, not only get control of the government, but wreck Ukraine's economy hmm. as well. And so um, all the language in the, in the years and months leading up to this, talking about the denazification I mean, these are all code words in, uh, in Russian uh, Kremlin narratives um, to justify what it is they were doing. So I, I really think that they believed that they could, could roll right in. And, and, and some of that's reflected in the poor preparations. The, the amount of ammunition that you actually expend in combat is always a lot more than you ever anticipate. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, they didn't have Needed. They didn't have the preparations on hand that they needed, uh, and they didn't have enough people. Um, so that that shows me that there's a degree of arrogance and uh, overestimation of their own abilities and underestimation of how Ukraine would fight. But that was that was the ultimate objective was to take Kiev and uh, and replace the government. So Kiev in the north and then the coastal areas along the south, uh, basically to cut Ukraine off from the rest of the world from import-exports on the shipping lines. Is that kind of how you saw it? Yeah. This, this is another area where I was uh, um, missed. I didn't think that he would actually attack because he didn't need to. Um, the, when I, I visited Kiev about six and a half weeks ago, had the chance to meet President Zelensky. I was there as part of a small delegation. And already, this is this was a couple of weeks before February 24th, um, already you had all these troops, you know, 150, 170,000 Russian troops on the border, mostly in the north, uh, as well as uh, what they had uh, in Crimea and Donbass. Uh, they had concentrated their navy. Uh, they already controlled the Sea of Azov, this big gigantic bridge, the Kerch Bridge that... Um, separate that connects the Crimean Peninsula to mainland Russia, which also acts as a gate on commercial vessels trying to come in and out of Sea of Azov. And um, when I was there, 
the head of the American Chamber of Commerce in Kiev told me, he said, hey, man, every American company here is asking me if they should leave. So this is before Secretary Blinken said all Americans get out. Um, but the U.S. government was, was saying invasion is imminent. Um, and you could already sense that the Ukrainian economy was, was uh, really starting to uh, deteriorate. Uh, with the Americans wanting to leave. And then even the airlines almost missed my flight um, from Kiev back to Frankfurt because Lufthansa in the middle of the night changed my departure time from uh, six in the morning to four in the morning. <laughs> well, you can imagine I was uh, doing OJ Simpson to the airport, um, you know, um, after I find, found that out. <laughs> and, um, uh, but those, these were all indicators. And so I thought, you know what, the Russians, they're going to do this like a boa constrictor. I mean, they're just going to keep tightening the grip uh, on Ukraine, choke it out so that the economy fails. Then the Zelensky government fails. He was President Zelensky at the time. If you'll remember, the domestic standing was he was not doing very well. Mm. And so I thought the Russians, they're going to be able to get what they want without a single soldier having to go into Ukraine. They'll escape all the sanctions that were being threatened and in almost a bloodless way would accomplish all their objectives. Um so, I, frankly, I was surprised that, that they went ahead and did the invasion because he didn't have to uh, to accomplish what he wanted. But I think that this goes to the uh, he really wanted to punish, uh, punish Ukraine also. So on this show, General, we, we often talk about the, <clears throat> the tools of national power and the application of statecraft as being both sort of an art and a science in how you apply those tools of national power. Uh, Putin has traditionally been a pretty... Well, I think what we've observed is, is he's played a weak hand incredibly well for quite some time. Uh, but this seems like a really bad miscalculation on his part, the decisions to invade. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, about the actual execution of the operation. Um, springtime, I mean, the Russians were doing, quote unquote, exercises on the on the Russian side of the border. Uh, their their tanks and, and other vehicles were getting bogged down in the mud all over the place, and yet they decided to go ahead and use this time of the year, choose this time of the year to initiate their operation. Was that a bad call on their part? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, terrible, but again, I think it reflects uh, a little bit of, of arrogance here. Um, the road network, uh, well, first of all, think of, think of Ukraine as the Midwest. I mean, Midwestern United States. It's, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of square miles of wheat fields, sunflower fields, uh, flat, really thick, rich black dirt. And, um, and so uh, with, with several rivers that move through it, so it kind of drains much of Central Europe. And so the soil, um, particularly in the time when you don't have a harsh winter, then uh, the soil is very um, unsuitable for off-road movement for armored vehicles, wheeled vehicles. And that's why you ended up with these long convoys on, on single roads because they couldn't get off the road. Now this, you know, the weather and the terrain would not have been a shock to anybody in the Russian general staff. They, they live there. I mean, they, they understand this or they should have, and yet they uh, uh, still lined up. And again, I think this reflects not only arrogance, but just uh, a lack of, of um experience and, and um and proper training uh, 
So they choose this time to invade Ukraine. Uh, they can't go off-road, so you have your traditional sort of large military formations uh, taking uh, broad swaths of territory. So they get, they're constrained to the roads. Does that basically play perfectly into the small unit uh, tactics that the Ukrainians are using against them? Is that, I mean, have, has, did the Russians literally give away the, the entire plan to the Ukrainians and give them the, uh, the initiative here? You know, for a Navy guy, you, you show a good grasp of uh, infantry <laughs> and, uh, and land warfare tactics. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the Ukrainians uh, turned every little town and village into a like a strong point. And so when convoys would go through the town, I mean, every, all your listeners have seen the videos that are out there of javelins and other anti-tank systems uh, hammering these uh, Russian uh, convoys as they pass through. And of course, uh, you know, when I look at those things, I see vehicles all bunched together. That's a dead giveaway that um, troops are scared. They're not trained. Um, and there's no sergeants there kicking their ass, making them stay apart. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you would never no. just go through a little cluster like that be- because of exactly what happened. And also you would never uh, an armor unit would not just roll through a town without having infantry dismounted on the sides, moving through to make sure that there were not guys hiding in the tree line with javelin or, or something like that. So um, the Ukrainians were able to uh, take advantage of the fact that they know their own country. They know their terrain, that this is their area. Uh, and, and the Russians played into it very well. Now, I, I think it's worth noting that um, for the last eight years, uh, up until just a few months ago, the U.S. Army and the Canadian Army were providing training for Ukrainian forces at a uh, large training area called Yavariv in western Ukraine near the city of Lviv. And uh, Ukrainian units would rotate through that training center, just like American units go through the National Training Center in the States or uh, 29 Palms to uh, before they were sent off to the front. This was over the previous years. And what we noticed is that Ukrainian forces were growing increasingly more confident, increasingly better, and in a much more Western style decentralized command and control methodology where junior officers, especially the ones who survived 2014 and 15, became very adept at this more decentralized command and control, which is counterintuitive when you think about Ukraine having been a part of the Soviet Union for decades and under the influence of the Russian way of war for centuries, um, they turned out to be very, very technically savvy and very comfortable uh, at junior levels of fighting. And so most of the Ukrainian units that are fighting, again, when you think of the map we see on the news around that, the periphery of the country, there's not somebody in a bunker in Kiev telling everybody what to do. No, these are local mayors and local commanders that are fighting like tigers out there, uh, and that that really uh, I think has made a big difference as well. Uh, so for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host John Olson. Our guest today is retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, former commander of U.S. Army forces in Europe, and we're discussing the situation in Ukraine. Uh, so, General Hodges, let's let's stay sort of at the tactical level just a little bit longer. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. The U.S. has provided Ukrainians with uh, Stinger man-portable uh, shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles. 
Uh, you and I know the importance of close air support uh, in modern combat, uh, the power of uh, having air supremacy or even, even air superiority to protect your ground forces as they carry forward their operations to close with, engage, and destroy enemy forces. How, how well are the, are the Ukrainians doing with, uh, with the Stingers? Are, there, are the Russians holding off uh, on, on much of their close air support and other low-level low air operations out of fear of the effectiveness of the Stingers? Or is it incompetence on the part of the Russian military? You mentioned earlier that they don't have the flight time that they probably should. They don't have the training to operate in a, in a contested environment. Uh, what, what's your assessment of that? So even though the Russians have a significant advantage in numbers of aircraft, it's more about the pilot that's in the aircraft, not the platform itself, that mm -hmm. it really matters. And so there is a, a lack of training, um, individual training, as well as uh, operational uh, environmental environment flying uh, experience for the Russians. Um, even with their numerical advantage, the Russians have not achieved uh, air superiority over Ukraine. In fact, it is totally contested. Um, most of the Russian Air Force now delivers their weapons from Russian airspace. They don't even fly into Ukraine. They're able to, they're launching their cruise missiles and, and other weapons from the aircraft while they're still in Ukraine and uh, Russian airspace mm. uh, because they, they've lost so many aircraft, helicopters as well as uh, fixed wing uh, fast movers um, in Ukraine. So they, they stay out of there. Which is, which is something, um, and that goes to uh, the effectiveness of, of Ukrainian air defense systems. Now, Stingers are more effective against drones and helicopters because of the, the range, and, the, uh, and it is a man-portable system where you've got to find the target, and then it has a, a device that locks on uh, to the aircraft to, that, it wants to, uh, that you want to engage. Uh, but the Ukrainians also have older... Uh, systems for higher altitude that they have been using effectively. So they have shot down a lot of Ukrainian aircraft. And honestly, they were more effective than I had expected. Hmm. They clearly need more capability for air and missile defense to be able to knock down these missiles as well as knocking down uh, aircraft. That's, that's what they really are um, pleading for. Okay. And I, and I know that, uh, well, Actually, let's let's move it back up toward, toward a sort of a more theater or operational level uh, discussion now, if you if you don't mind. Uh, I know you've argued for the establishment of a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, I, the concept of no-fly zones goes back quite a few years. I was actually embarked in USS Ranger back in '92 when we kicked off Operation Southern Watch, which the, was the no-fly zone over southern Iraq. Uh, our aircrew uh, flew missions all hours of the day and night. Uh, to prevent Saddam Hussein from flying his military, mostly helicopters, against the Shiite villages in southern Iraq. Uh, under what parameters would you institute a, a no-fly zone uh, over Ukraine? Perhaps you could explain to our listeners a little bit about the complexities uh, that are inherent in establishing a, uh, and maintaining a no-fly zone to include maybe okay. rules of engagement considerations, things like that. Yeah, so... Um you're right. I did sign a letter uh, with about 20 other people advocating for a humanitarian no-fly zone mm -hmm. because I was just sickened every day watching rockets and missiles slam into apartment buildings and hospitals and seeing the, the damage it was doing to the uh, innocent Ukrainian population. It was murder. Yeah. Uh, and also, I still have in my mind 1995 when we all stood by while Re Republika Srpska forces murdered 8,000 Bosnian men and boys in the town of Srebrenica. And so I thought, well, I, 
We can't be a part of something like that again. We have got to find a way to do it. Now, that's the emotional side of me talking, um, the human side of me. But the practical side of me um, says, all right, well, what, what is involved with a no-fly zone? What does that mean? You, if you declare it but don't enforce it, then obviously it's an empty, an, an empty statement. So if we're going to declare a no-fly zone of any type over Ukraine, then U.S. and other allied air, aircraft have got to enforce it. That means you got to be up there. And that means you have to be prepared. You have to assume that Russian aircraft are going to come up and you're going to engage them. Now, without a doubt, um, U.S. Air Force, uh, our allies would crush any Russian aircraft that came up. So this is not about, oh, we might lose because they, they would wipe them out. Yeah. Uh, but the, the consideration is that now you've got NATO forces head to head against Russian forces. And um, our president, plus the other leaders of the alliance, um, had insisted that we're not going to have boots on the ground, which also means you're not going to have pilots in the air going head to head with Russians. Because we don't, we they wanted to avoid an escalation into something worse. Now, I, maybe later we can challenge that notion because I, I think I think we've we've talked ourselves out of doing what needed to be done. We've over uh, exaggerated the threat of escalation. But nonetheless, let me stick to the answering the question. So you have to have aircraft that are up twenty four seven. Uh, which means you have AWACS up there controlling, you have tankers up there so aircraft can continue to refuel and stay up. And, and you've got to cover, um, I mean, Ukraine is a large country. It's twice the size of Germany. Right. So, you know, maybe you only cover parts of it or, or whatever you declare in order to sustain this, which means you've got bases back in Poland and Germany and Romania with ground crews going around the clock also doing maintenance, refueling, and you've got multiple crews. You understand. That's one part of it. And we would never send up a pilot um, if we weren't prepared to destroy enemy air defense. So in other words, while you've got um, the uh, um, uh, our aircraft up in the sky and Russian air defense down on the ground, right. um, we, we've got to be prepared to go down and destroy so you're hitting a Russian target on the ground, and it might even be inside Russia. If it launches a missile up at one of our aircraft, we're going to take it out immediately. So that now that's the second consideration. You're going against Russian ground systems, perhaps inside Russia. Okay, that's, that's a serious consideration. Uh, and then the third thing, we would not put a pilot up unless we were prepared to go in and get her or him if they were shot down. So now yeah. you potentially have a helicopter going in, even inside Russia, to pick up a down pilot for those three reasons um having a uh um uh no fly zone is is fraught with risk of escalation so yeah. that that's why um the president and the other leaders uh, are are not prepared to to do that yet i disagree but um that's that's the consideration and and i, and I understand it uh, so let's uh, <clears throat> let's pan back out or pull back out a little bit more to the broader European theater as we continue. Uh, you led NATO's uh, Allied Land Command in Izmir, Turkey, uh, and before the I would say before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, NATO was kind of struggling to sort of frame why the alliance was still completely relevant. I mean, we we're trying to find our footing, but now it became very obvious. What is your assessment of the speed with which the NATO allies and, frankly, America's friends and allies around the world? 
have come together to oppose Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Maybe, I mean, you live in Germany, you're very familiar with the German government and the German military. Maybe comment a little bit about the about face and the German government regarding decisions on defense spending as an example of how quickly things have changed. Yeah, this, you know, uh, to be honest now, uh, part of our problem is that um, we are where we are because of an unwillingness to acknowledge the threat. I mean, this goes back, back several years, uh, even during the Obama administration. You know, there was a there was some interest in focusing on China and, you know, Russia, regional power. Come on, you know, it just don't that, that sort. Of, so there was a disdain for the threat of Russia. And then candidly, the 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 uh, four years of the Trump administration was a catastrophe as far as Russia is concerned. Also, we didn't we didn't acknowledge and without American leadership. Many of our European allies, particularly further west, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, are kind of like, ah, come on, you know, we got to work with them, that sort of thing. We depend on gas. Only our Eastern European allies, you know, the Baltic countries, Poland, Romania, they know the deal. And, but the, but people dismiss them like, you know, come on, you guys are always crying about the Russians. <laughs> yeah, with good reason because they yeah. they've all been under. You know, whether it was the Russian Empire or they were part of the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact. So they they know what it was like. So because of our the U.S. inability to to lead and focus everybody um, and uh, to recognize the threat and of, of many of our European allies to recognize the threat. I mean, Jeepers, at the end of the Cold War, we all disarmed as fast as we could. That's true. Uh, the U.S., the, the Brits, the Germans, the Canadians. Every, we all did. The, peace, the U.S. The peace Army. Dividend. <laughs> yeah, the, the, exactly. The peace dividend. And we ought to know after about 5,000 years of history that, um, you know, the best way to prevent war is to show that you're prepared for it. And that, that's a hard sell to taxpayers and to legislators to spend money on stuff that you hope you never, ever use. Right. You know, and um, and if the threat's not really obvious to you, I can understand taxpayers saying, why do we have all these ships or planes or troops? You know, what's the threat? We need to fix our hospitals, our bridges. And that's that's that was true in, in all the all the nations. However, we are where we are now and uh, not too late, but way late. Um, we all we, we woke up and, um, and and now even Germany has uh, has recognized that they can no longer just sort of sit back and enjoy uh, the, the protection of everybody else that uh, our German friends are. They're, frankly, they're our most important ally in Europe um, because of the economic power that that they have, and to be able to bring along the European Union on things where the United States has to work with the EU. Um, Germany realized that their um, sort of moral authority as the champion of European and Western values was eroding because they were they were standing by while Russia smashed those values in another European country, mm. and so they're they're was a, a, a wake-up call. And now, you know, almost every one of my German friends and neighbors, I mean, they are, they've got religion now about the need to, Germany um, has a responsibility uh, to do more now. I think the Biden administration deserves a lot of credit for this. Secretary Blinken, I mean, this has been one of the most uh, effective, comprehensive diplomatic efforts I've seen since 1995 in the, in the Dayton Peace Accord. And, and maybe before that, the building of the coalition uh, t, uh, in the first Gulf War on the part of the George H.W. Bush administration. 
Yeah, true. I mean, and again, this you know, what's the common thread here? American leadership. Um, yeah, of course, we all want European allies to do more, to take more responsibility. But our economic prosperity is tied directly to European economic prosperity, right. uh, which means you can have stability and security in Europe. So even if not one European country paid a euro, a pound, or a krona for their defense, it's still for our benefit that Europe is stable, secure, and prosperous. And because even with the biggest defense budget in history, uh, we don't have the ability to do everything we have to do around the world, we need allies. Yeah. And all of our best and most reliable allies come from Europe as well as Canada and Australia. It all goes back to Thucydides, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yes, exactly. So, sir, we know uh, Vladimir Putin has, has sort of threatened the use of nuclear weapons for existential threats against the state in Russia, uh, and, and even in response to conventional attacks. Uh, there's been some concern, a lot of talk in the news, that he might choose to employ chemical weapons offensively or even a tactical nuclear weapon, as they say. Uh, a lot of what-ifs out there. I, I've always, frankly, been sort of stunned by the idea of a, of a tactical nuclear weapon. I, I don't see the use of any nuclear weapon as remaining tactical for very long. It sort of has immediate strategic impacts as soon as you detonate one. Uh, what, what, yeah. do you, what do you think are the triggers that might fundamentally alter the equation for the U.S. and our NATO allies with regards to this Ukraine situation? I mean, what, at what point does our acceptance of... Uh, of really significant risk in in standing off against the Russians uh, become paramount in the determined the deterrent strategy. Well, for me, of course, we've passed that point with uh, the continued uh, destruction of cities and the indiscriminate targeting of civilians for the purpose of punishing Ukraine, but also to uh, weaponize refugees to put massive pressure on the, not only the Zelensky government but all the European governments. Now you've got. More than 10 million Ukrainians are on the road. Yeah. About four, three and a half to four of them are outside of Ukraine. Um, Two million in Poland. I mean, think about that. Two million refugees just in Poland. It's incredible. Yeah. Over half a million in Romania. This the, you can't sustain that. But it's going to it's going to be um, it's going to be that way for uh, quite some time. And um, so uh, that was that was part of the uh, um, plan all along, I believe, was to create this massive pressure um, with, with the refugees. But um, we there, there's not the willingness yet uh, to do that. Uh, President Biden came pretty close on Friday uh, when he was in Warsaw, <laughs> and, he, and he was looking in the face of thousands of, of refugees and, you know, mothers, children, uh, orphans, widows, uh, quite an emotional um, setting. And um, you could see that he was moved by all this. When you, when you see it, smell it, touch it, the, the impact of what the Kremlin is doing, he's like, well, we can't have another Srebrenica, or, or I mean, we can't just stand by and not do something. And so uh, it feels a little bit like, I hope, um, that we're, we're, we're getting close to the point where nations are going to say, okay, this has got to stop. We, we can't just at, at least have more sense of urgency of providing to the Ukrainians what they need so they can defend themselves. When I met President Zelensky six and a half weeks ago, he said, he said, I don't need the American troops. Just give me the weapons so we can defend ourselves. And, you know, something I, like the Berlin airlift, that kind of intensity yeah. of getting things in there, even though they would almost all be coming by the by ground. Uh, but you know what, you know what I'm saying is 
to get them the stuff that they can protect themselves. And I'm just not feeling the sense of urgency yet. Now, obviously, what would dramatically change the situation is if Russia used a chemical weapon or a nuclear weapon. Uh, and you're right. This when you hear tactical nuke, it kind of sounds almost sort of harmless. You know, not not that terrible, but it's still a nuclear weapon. And um, I, the Secretary General Stoltenberg, uh, the, the Secretary General of NATO, said that, uh, hey, look, uh, um, if they use chemical weapons, if the Russians use chemical weapon, that puts this in a whole new category. That's that's a pretty uh, strong statement by the Secretary General. And President Biden had said there would be severe consequences. Thank goodness he did not say redline because yeah. you remember the Obama administration used the words redline in, in Syria, and then the Assad regime, supported by the Russians, jumped right over it. Right. I think Biden, who would have been the vice president then, remembers that. And so um, my, my point is, I think we are prepared to do a lot more if Russia makes a terrible decision to use a chemical weapon. I don't think they will, because the, the kind of chemical weapons they're most likely to use would not give them any battlefield advantage. I mean, they're already killing civilians like crazy. They're already uh, destroying cities and, and creating a refugee problem. So there's no advantage to be gained from a Russian perspective. And I would imagine that the people uh, in the Kremlin, the ones sitting at the lo- far end of that long table from uh, President Putin are saying, hey, <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, do, don't do this, because that will finally push the Americans to come in and, and really do more. So that's why I think it's unlikely. And I would say the same thing for a nuke. So, General, we get about uh, a little less than 10 minutes left before we have to get you on the road. I know you have a plane to catch. Um, I won't ask you to predict what will happen to Vladimir Putin or even what an off-ramp looks like. I think we're still trying to figure all those things out. But I'm going to ask you a larger, uh, more strategic question. Uh, what lessons should the United States be learning right now from this crisis? Anything come to your mind? Yeah, the um, first of all, it, it seems so obvious, but we are where we are because we didn't do this. But, you know, be, be clear and, and understand what the threats are before they become crises. You, you can't make a threat go away by wishing it away or ignoring it. And uh, this... This, um, I think, naive approach that, hey, China is the big threat, you know, this phrase park Russia or leave that to the Europeans is is a naive, dangerous uh, perspective that has been shared by Republican and Democratic administrations, as well as several different European governments. So um, you have to address threats uh, before they become a crisis. And, and the United States does not get to pick its threats. We we do have to prioritize, but Russia's a threat, Iran is a threat, North Korea's a threat, Chinese obviously a threat, and Islamic extremism, nobody even mentions that anymore, which we spent the last 20 years dealing with that. Yeah. It's still there. <clears throat> so um how do how do you deal with all these threats before they become a, a crisis? And and that requires a little bit more strategic thinking. Um, I, I like um, this notion. Uh, Secretary Mattis one time said when uh, he said when some, when I hear somebody talking about cutting State Department budget, I start ordering more ammunition because right. because that means if if we don't have strong diplomatic uh, core and strong diplomatic effort, then you're going to end up in a fight. 
and so um, getting the balance of diplomacy right, it's backed up by a strong, capable, ready uh, military uh, and, and working with allies uh, and having strategic thinking. You know, all the conversations about Ukraine the last few years was, was as if Ukraine was an island. Right. And, and the biggest debate was whether or not to give them javelin. Holy hell. Now, <laughs> Ukraine, Ukraine matters to us because of where it sits on the map. Right. It's on the Black Sea where we have three NATO allies. You have huge economic potential. Russia uses the Black Sea as a launching pad for all the bad stuff they do in the Middle East. Uh, and, and you need the Black Sea as a bulwark against Iran. So there's four big strategic reasons uh, why the Black Sea region matters to us. And, and we haven't acted on any of that. Instead, we're fussing about whether or not to give them Stinger or Javelin to the, to the Ukrainians. And uh, that, to me, is, is the biggest takeaway of all, that we, we need a strategy for the region, not where you kind of surf in and out, but you sustain commitment on economic development. You know, Ukraine is the only country where somebody died with an EU flag in their hand. I mean, they, they wanted to join the West because they saw how much better life was for Poland after Poland was able to join the EU and NATO. They saw life getting better in all of Europe. And Ukrainians are like, we, we want that. And uh, you know, ultimately, this is about democracy versus autocracy. And um, Ukraine is not a perfect democracy, but they've only been a democracy for about 30 years. And we've been at it for two and a half centuries, and we haven't quite got it licked ourselves. No, we're, we're still working on it. <laughs> so I think this, this is a, about more than Ukraine. This is about uh, supporting um, democracy and stopping an autocratic government. And you can be sure that the Chinese are watching, that if the United States, with all of our allies, cannot stop Russia, then they're not going to be too impressed with anything that we say about Taiwan or the South China Sea. Yeah, I was going to I was going to ask you if there's any lessons that you think the Chinese are learning right now, but we're uh, unfortunately running out of time. <laughs> we we could go on for hours talking about all these strategic challenges. I want I want to give you uh, the final word today, uh, Lieutenant General Hodges. What what else should listeners know about the situation in Ukraine? I, I obviously haven't covered everything. What, what haven't I asked you that I should have asked you today? Well, uh, John, thanks for giving me the, the privilege uh, of, and this opportunity to talk to all your listeners. Um, where are we going to be in six months or, or a year from now? I mean, you've got 10 million people that want to go home. Hmm. They, they, they want to get back home. What are they going to go back to? I'm sure most of your listeners have seen the video of what Mariupol looks like right now or yeah. Kharkiv and the incredible destruction in, in so many uh, Ukrainian uh, cities. Um what are they going to go back to? So this is going to be a massive recovery and cleanup um, requirement for the, for the rest of us to help Ukraine get back on its feet. And by the way, millions, literally millions of people in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East get much of their grain from Ukraine. Right. There, there's no grain going to be exported from Ukraine this year, or certainly not much. So that we're going to have a serious food problem. And the Russians have already said that um, no export from, from Russia uh, for several months also. So, you know, th- th- there's, a, there's a food problem um, right. for, for millions of people that the United States and others, the Europeans will have to figure out a way to, to mitigate that. Um, I think the, uh, the, the relationships, you know, what, what's the relationship with Russia going to be um, six, six months from now, nine months from now, a year from now, 
uh, Putin will never be invited, should never be invited anywhere. Lavrov has been um, shown to be one of the biggest liars in, in Russian history. They're the uh, uh, foreign minister who was up until a year ago was kind of treated like sort of an elder statesman. You know, he was somebody you could deal with. He's he's as bad as any of them. And uh, the Russian people have been screwed over more by their government than than anybody. I mean, all these guys, including senior military officials, have massive property holdings in in, uh, in London and Miami and and in other places, uh, while Russian people have suffered. On Friday, the 1st of April, is the next uh, conscription report date for, mm. for Russia. This is the regular scheduled conscription process. 130,000 Russian families are supposed to send their son to report to be a private in the Russian army on Friday, the 1st of April. Um, can you imagine if even just one third of those families said, hell no, my son is not going. Right. There's no way. I mean, that would create, uh, I think, a ripple, a shock across Russian society that would really embolden those people who know how bad it is and, and that could lead to uh, uh, Russians taking control of their own destiny. I mean, what President Biden was said was right. Yeah. You know, Putin should not remain in power. Uh, and he was speaking, you know, he was, he was outraged. And so no U.S. policy is not going to be a regime change, but Russian people should take control of their future. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, former commander of U.S. Army Forces in Europe and current Pershing Chair for Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, National Security This Week. John, thank you very much. And beat Navy. <laughs> if listeners wanted to see some more of your current work and learn a little bit more about Center for the Center for European Policy Analysis, where would they find that website? Well, www.sepa.org is, is our website. Okay. Well, hopefully they'll go and take a look at uh, all the work that you guys are doing. General Hodges, thank you so much for generously sharing your time with us today. Thanks, John. Good luck. That closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care.